0: Can God really be trusted? Can God be trusted? After all, as we look around us, when is the last time we saw God? When is the last time we have seen God do something in our lives? Sickness abounds. There's death all around us. As we look our eyes upward, we see nothing in this world but chaos. Nothing but confusion. A world filled with murder, hate, and war. A world that does not seem to, run, to be run by a really powerful God. If God was a, the CEO of the world, He should be fired. Because He's doing a terrible job running this world. And as we come to these conclusions, as we think about the world around us, and, and we think, gosh, God can't be trusted. Perhaps that's you this morning. Perhaps you doubt whether God is trustworthy. Can God really be trusted? Do You wrestle with this truth or this question this morning. Is God trustworthy? Trusting that God, when He promises something, will actually come through on those promises. You see, you and I are promised things every day. We promise people every day. As you know, living in a fallen world, promises are made, but promises are rarely kept. We promise we'll do this for our children, but we rarely do. We promise to make that phone call to you know, call our parents or to call our grandparents, but we rarely do. We promise to be better and to do harder and to work harder. But we rarely do. People promise us all the time that they'll stop hurting us. And stop doing things to to cause pain in our lives. But they rarely do. And they keep causing pain. As we look around the world, as we consider our own experiences, we often conclude because those around us are not faithful, then God must not be faithful. Do you trust that God will obey His Word? That when He makes a promise, that He can actually keep those promises? The Bible is filled with promises. From the beginning in Genesis 1 all the way to the end in Revelation, there are promises that abound. And many times we look at those promises and, and we look down and we look around and we wonder is God truly faithful? Promises made and promises kept. Well, this is what Peter was facing. This is what the this congregation that Peter's writing to was facing these questions is God faithful to keep his promises? Can God be trusted? Well, over the last few weeks, we have looked at the letter of 2 Peter. A letter that that has been written to a congregation, as we have seen, faced uh, with false teachers. Uh, Peter has taken up the task to write to them, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to encourage these saints to stand firm in the faith against these prevailing winds of false doctrine. We have learned that there has arisen from among this congregation false teachers. From among the own membership there has come false teachers who have sought to lead the congregation away. And we have seen particularly at the heart of their false teaching is a denial of the return of Jesus Christ. They denied the Lord's return. They denied that Jesus would come again to judge the living and the dead. They denied that there was some future judgment for which God would judge sinners. And therefore, they believed that it didn't matter how one lived. That a life of holiness was not necessary for eternal life. That godliness was unimportant. And so therefore, they called the people to live, a li- live lives of licentiousness. That is, living however they chose to live and particularly to live contrary to scripture and so we have seen that peter's confronted them in their false teaching we've we've seen in chapter 2 peter just took them to task and over those last 3 weeks we've looked at at really where they've gone astray and now in chapter 3 what peter is doing is he's turning the the page if you will away from the false teachers. The direction isn't towards the false teachers, but rather toward the reader. And having closed the chapter on these false teachers, he now gives some positive exhortation. And so over the next four weeks, we're going to finish up this, this letter of Second Peter by looking at these really four exhortations that he gives uh, centered around the Lord's return particularly thinking about the implications of the Lord Jesus' return. That if it is true that Jesus is coming again, how does that transform our lives today? How does it shape the way you go to work, uh, the way you come home and and do your your home responsibilities? How How does it transform the way you see this world and the people around you? That's what we want to give ourselves to think about over the next few weeks. The Lord is coming again. We better get ready. And for that we turn to 2nd Peter in chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3 in verses 1 through 7. Hear the word of the Lord. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? by that same word the heavens oh excuse me were was deluged with water and perished but by the same word the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly peter here reminds us as christians that there will always be those who will mock our beliefs particularly in divine judgment. Peter reminds us that there will always be those who will mock, who will scoff, who will laugh at our views about the second coming of Christ. But we must not lose heart, however, for God has destroyed this world before and we believe He will do it again. So the purpose of our time, and really I think the purpose of Peter's letter here in this particular section, is to prepare Christians for the scoffing they will endure. To prepare us for the scoffing we will endure for our beliefs in the divine judgment and the second coming of Christ. In the sense that Peter is preparing us to be mocked, to be laughed at, to be ridiculed. And that we are to prepare ourselves lest we also believe their lies. And so Peter gives us really three ways to approach those who mock divine judgment. Three ways to approach those who mock divine judgment. I think this would... Narrowly apply to divine judgment, particularly that's the, the theological point that is being debated, whether or not God is going to judge sinners. That, that's, where they're, that's where they're debating, that's what they are denying. They're denying that Jesus is coming again to judge the living and the dead. So narrowly, this is preparing us for those to laugh and ridicule such things, but we could think of these things as broadly as well. So three broad ways to prepare ourselves for really being mocked about really any belief we have about the Lord Jesus. First, don't be surprised by mocking. Second, don't be frustrated by mocking. And thirdly, do not be fooled by it. Do not be fooled by mocking. Number one, we see here first in verses 1-3, through Peter says don't be surprised by mockery don't be surprised by mockery he tells us here that this is why he wrote the letter he restates if you will the purpose this is now the second letter that i'm writing to you beloved in both of them i'm stirring you up i'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder So that you should remember the predictions. So that you would remember. Peter's writing to remind them. And the nature, as we've seen weeks ago, the nature of a reminder is that you should already have known what you're being reminded about. Right? Honey, go go get the milk from the store. Uh, I'm reminding you that you need to go get the... right. You already knew you had to go get the milk from the store. You're being reminded of that which you already know. And so Peter is not writing to this congregation, telling them anything new. There's no light bulbs going off for this congregation. Everything that, that he is writing is a reminder. And it, and it reminds us that as Christians... As God's people, we need regular reminders. We need to be reminded of the truths that we have believed. This is the point he makes in chapter 1. In verse 12, Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities, that is, godly qualities that preceded, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. You see, these are things they already knew, Things they already believed, but things they needed to be reminded of. Uh, If you will, the word that he uses there, to stir up, is the idea to awaken. uh, To awaken from sleep. Uh, They were sleepy in their thinking. They were sleepy in their lives. And they needed to be stirred up to be awakened. Brothers and sisters, that's what we do every Lord's Day, is it not? Every Lord's Day, we gather around the Word to be stirred up by the Scriptures, to be recalibrated, reoriented. In a moment, we're going to partake of the Lord's table. The Lord's table is a a monthly reorientation to the Gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a monthly spiritual checkup where we are reminded about the Gospel and our need of it. You see, we are creatures... That, as the the great hymn says, prone to wonder. Prone to wonder. And so we need to be awakened from our sleepy thinking. But what was it that that they needed to remember? What was it that that Peter wrote to remind them of? Well, we see it here in verse 2. I've wrote to remind you, that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. First, they were to remember the predictions or the promises of the holy prophets. Those things that he spoke about in verses 16 through 21. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Through the prophets, God made promises to his people. One of those promises, which I think perhaps he has in the back of his mind, uh, that great promise that Isaiah makes, Isaiah in Isaiah 66, uh, makes a promise at the end of this letter. Hear what he says. For behold, the Lord will come in fire in his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger in fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. "...for by fire will the Lord enter into judgment, and by His sword with all flesh, and those slain by the Lord shall be many. Those who sanctify and purify themselves to go into the gardens, following one in the midst, eating pig's flesh, and the abomination and mice shall come to an end together." Declares the Lord, for I know their works and their thoughts. And the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, that they shall come and shall see my glory. And I will set a sign among them, and from them I will put, I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pool, and Lud. Who bow the, who draw the bow to to Boul and javelin to the coastland far away that have not heard my fame or seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the nations, and they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord on horses and in chariots and in litters and on mules and on dromedaries to the holy mountain Jerusalem, says. The Lord. Just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord, and some of them also I will make for priests and for late Levites. For as the new heavens and the new earth I will make shall remain before me, says the Lord. So shall your offspring and your name. From new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die. Their fire shall not be quenched. And they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. These are the promises that they were to remember. Hundreds of years earlier, some 500 years earlier, Isaiah prophesied that one day the Lord would destroy the world. That one day the Lord would bring an end to creation as he gathered together his people. And so they were, as Peter says, they were to remember these predictions that the Lord will one day, and as you see in Isaiah, the exhortation there to judgment is to holy living. In the sense that the judgment of of God was to bring about holy living. That the way we live matters. We see also back in 2 Peter, that they were to remember the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. That is, the apostles were the messengers who brought the Lord's teaching to this congregation. They were to remember that. I believe that's what we heard earlier in Mark chapter 13. As the Lord in the Olivet Discourse prepared his disciples for his return. And throughout that, you heard, as Bonnie read, Jesus saying, stay awake, stay alert, get ready. And as we know, that was the Lord's promise. I'm coming again. Be ready when I come. And so Peter says, listen, don't be surprised by these things. And more than that, we we see in this that we are to be reminded, I think, in verse 2, that scoffers are coming. Because not only did the prophets and the apostles prophesy and predict the Lord's return, but as the Lord Jesus himself predicts in Mark 13, that that there will come those who will seek to lead you astray. There will come those who mock The return of Christ. And that's what we see in verse 3. Knowing this first of all. That scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. Following their own sinful desires. He says know this first of all. Or above all listen to this. Remember what I told you before. That there will come scoffers or mockers. Peter reminds them of the promises of Isaiah 66 and reminds them of the promises of Mark 13. But promises also that scoffers will come. Those who will laugh at such teaching. Perhaps this is again why Peter favored Noah. Oh, we were reminded about Noah earlier in our study of 2 Peter as Peter regularly uses Noah. Noah we know from the book of Genesis, that he was mocked for his work. He was mocked as he was building the ark. Noah, what are you doing? Why are you building an ark in the deserts? But Noah persevered. Noah endured these harsh treatments from people of the world as he prepared the ark. And people simply love the darkness more than the light, and that is why they will forever mock. Well, what kind of God would create a world and fill it with people only to destroy it through water and fire? But if you're not being challenged by that question, then you're not listening to those around you. Because that's a question they're asking. How is it that God can be good and create people and then destroy them? You see, the question misses the point People deserve God's judgment. It seems like a pretty suspicious God to me, you might hear. A God who really I'm not interested in following. A God who would annihilate, destroy an entire world because he got mad. Because they did a few wrong things. And they didn't love him enough. There will always be those that will come and question God's character and God's motives. They will begin to distort God and his character in order to match their view of God. Now, Paul himself warns of these kind of scoffers when he wrote to the or when he met with the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, verses 29 through 31. There he warns the elders I know that after my departure fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Remember that for three years I did not cease night and day to admonish you, every one with tears. Paul was weeping because he knew that scoffers would come to lead people astray. But the point that Peter is making here is that we must not be surprised. We must not be shocked when we see people pointing their finger and saying in a a mockery or in laughter, how is it that you can believe a God who would judge His own creation? But as we know, they miss the point that God is judging His creation because that creation willingly rebelled against Him in choosing to live life their own way rather than His way. Brothers and sisters, we must see that we live in the last days. As I have pointed out, often I get that question a lot. Are we in the end times, the, the last days? Let me just answer that question for you. Yes, yes, and yes. And that's not because I have some nifty chart or because I've been reading the newspapers too much, but rather because we have been in the last days since the death of Jesus Christ. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ opened, if you will, the end of human history. The final judgment has dawned in the judgment of the eternal Son. And so there we await one day. One day when the Lord Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead. And brothers and sisters, we must not be surprised by it. We must not be surprised when those around you laugh at your belief in the Scriptures. This is what Peter is reminding us and exhorting us to, that trust, brothers and sisters, in God's promises. Do not allow them to be mocked. As Christians, we must not be surprised. must not be taken back. But trust that the Lord will fulfill his promises in his perfect time. That's what we'll look at next week, is how God fulfills his promises in verses 8 through 10. But first, we must not be surprised when those who come and mock. Secondly, here, do not be frustrated by mockery. In verses 3 through 4, Peter says, Listen, don't be frustrated by mockery. One of the easiest things. We can face is those who question the Scriptures and be frustrated by these questions. And brothers and sisters, we should not grow frustrated with sinners who do not yet understand. And one of the temptations I'm sure you face is to grow irritated when people don't believe the gospel or who question the clear teaching of Scripture. We must not grow frustrated in those ways, but rather teach and believe the Scriptures. We see here in this passage in verse 3 their motives. The reason they denied the Lord's return, as I alluded to a moment ago, is because they followed their own sinful desires. They were motivated by their belly, as Paul would say. They wanted a God. They had no problem with God. No issues with a God, so long as that God would not pry into the finer details of their life. And friends, sadly, that's the kind of God we often want. A God who will come when we need Him, but a God who leaves us alone most days of the week. A God who will come when we call, but a God who doesn't get involved in our lives. Do you believe God? They would say, "Of course, I believe in God, but only if that God doesn't care how I live." This was their motive. They were motivated by their own sin, but we see also their doubts, where they doubted the Lord's return. In verse four, they will come saying, "Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things can, are continuing as they are were from the beginning." Their doubts, they doubted the Lord's return. They doubted whether or not Jesus was coming again. In other words, Jesus said he was coming again, and at his ascension he promised that he would return. Where is he? No, it's its interesting. As you think, these people questioned this uh, 2,000 years ago. How much more today would we not be faced with the challenges to that question? Some God you believe, he promised he would come again. He hasn't showed up for 2,000 years. Where is he? Where is the sign of his coming? He's promised, but see, that points to the fact that, that God can't fulfill his promises. He promises things, but he can't keep his promises. Where is he? Like the false prophets in Ezekiel's day, they went around telling people, peace, peace, When everything's going to be fine. Jesus isn't coming back. He's gone on a journey. He's busy. He won't bother us anymore. And so they had their doubts. Or as Jeremiah stood up against the, the rampant immorality and idolatry of his day, not a single soul believed in him. Not a single one trusted anything he said. He's like God's coming to, to annihilate you all if you don't get right. Oh Jeremiah, you you've been reading too much science fiction, giant Jeremiah, just it's okay. Just calm down a little bit, Jeremiah. You just, you just need to relax. Look, God is love. He would He would never punish us for our sin. He loves us too much. We see and we know that God did fulfill his word to Jeremiah. That God does fulfill his promises. We see also here their observations, the basis, if you will, the reason why they believe that Jesus was not coming again. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning. In other words, nothing new is under the sun. Oh, we know that. That's in the scriptures. Solomon taught, nothing new under the sun. Things come and then things go. Things are the same. Look around you, they say. Nothing's changed. Everything's been the same since the beginning of time. Well, things have gotten better here and worse there. But overall, the world is rather the same. People are born and people die. Nations rise and nations fall. Injustice abounds. Nothing changed. New president. And one day, he won't be the new president. And we'll have another new president. Or another new congress. Tides come in and tides go out. The sun comes up and the sun goes down. Look into the skies. Consider the constellations. Constellations in the sky that you're looking at. The Big Dipper. Thousands of years ago, people were looking at that Big Dipper. Things haven't changed. Everything's the same. Therefore, things will continue. They believe that history would continue into eternity. They believe that history was perpetual, an ongoing cycle of people born and people dying. That is that the world is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In other words, since God has has not judged this world, and since he's allowed sin to go on for so long, I mean, how many thousands of years has it been since the flood? God isn't going to judge the world, they would say. Perhaps even in our own day, the concentration that you've seen among conservation of this world. And global warming and this sort of like wanting to keep this world going, you not, might think that, that you think that might be motivated by the same sinful desire that if this world is going to continue forever, that means I don't have to really face any consequences for my actions. Nothing wrong with conservation, nothing wrong with you know keeping streets clean why are we doing it let us not grow weary in these last days let us not grow frustrated by those but endure for the glory of Christ jesus warns us and reminds us that this is not our that this is our lot in life that that we will be mocked we will be ridiculed we will be laughed at this world will hate us i find it so fascinating how often Christians find social validation through celebrity Christians. How often have you been tempted to, to find social validation because some famous person professed faith in Christ? How often have you been proud and said, man, it's so cool that so-and-so had this big stage and he talked about Jesus, and you find some validation in your faith, some assurance that, you know, now I really believe this is true if so-and-so will get up on that big stage and talk about Jesus. That's a very tempting and alluring thing, but we must not find validation through those in this world. This world will hate us. At the end of the day, this world has one goal, and that is the extermination of Christianity. The enemy would see nothing better than to see every Christian annihilated. And this is what Jesus says A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It's enough for the disciple to be like his master, and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his house? They ran around and told Jesus that he was Satan. What what more do you think they're going to say about you, Jesus says. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear hear whispered, proclaim in the housetops. And do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. As Christians, we must not be surprised... By mockery, nor should we be frustrated by it. There will always be those who twist, who distort God's word for their own sinful desires. And we must trust this is a part of God's good purposes for His own glory. Let's look finally and very quickly at number three. Do not be fooled by mockery. Do not be fooled by mockery. In verses 5 through 7, Peter lays out his defense. A threefold defense against their false teaching. So it's really just three points he makes here in verses five, six, and seven. First, the creation itself represents God's intervention in the world. In other words, their struggle, what they denied, was God, God's involvement in the world. They didn't trust God's promises because they couldn't see God's evident work in this world. They didn't see his fingerprint, if you will, on the lives of everyday people. But here, Peter says, listen, they've deliberately overlooked this fact. They deliberately. They they ignore this one thing. They, They put this out of their mind. They tear this out of their Bible. That the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the Word of God. What he's alluding there to is Genesis 1 in his own artful way, uh, and seemingly confusing way, he is alluding to to Genesis chapter 1. There we see, and God said, God said by his word, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And so God called the dry land earth, and the water that was gathered together, he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Peter is saying, listen, the world has existed and was created by God, i.e., God is involved in this world. God's creation points to his involvement. God didn't just push over the first domino and then things just sort of, let's see what happens. No, God is actively involved in every integral piece. In fact, in Colossians in chapter one and verses fifteen through twenty, we know that Christ is the one who reigns victorious. That that there is not a molecule in all of the cosmos that does not do what it wants apart from God's will. That every molecule does the will of God for his glory. Secondly, we see here in chapter six, or chapter three, and verse six that God's destruction of the world in flood again demonstrates his intervention in the world. He's saying, listen, remember God flooded the world once, he destroyed the world once, and he'll do it again. This is what we looked at weeks earlier when we considered verses 4 through 8 of chapter 2. We pointed to the fact that God's past character, how he acted in the past, demonstrates how he'll act in the future that God is never changing, that he's always the same. And so if God judged the world in the past, well, surely he'll do it in the future. God was involved by destroying. He didn't let sinners off the hook, but rather destroyed them through the flood. And then number three, we see in verse seven, but by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the godly. History will end in the destruction of this world. That it will be destroyed by fire and that the ungodly will be judged. This points back to Isaiah 66 as we heard the promises that Isaiah makes that one day God will destroy this world. And one of the things that we must be aware of here in this passage is to deny the Lord's return is to deny the Lord as Savior. You see, if you don't need to be rescued from God's divine judgment, then why is Jesus dying on the cross? If God is not judging Jesus on the cross, then what is He doing up there? Why is He there? Why do we sing, Look ye saints, the sight is glorious? What's so glorious about an innocent man dying? There is nothing glorious in that unless that man is dying on the cross for sinners as a perfect substitute for their sin. Then we understand more of God's divine judgment. See, we can't have it both ways. We can't have just a God of love and not a God of wrath, because if we don't have a God of wrath, then we don't have a Jesus. And if we don't have a Jesus, then we don't have a gospel, we don't have salvation. and we're afraid that this will be true of us, that we will be destroyed. But God tells us in his word that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die a perfect death for our sins, for our iniquities, for our rebellion, for living life our way rather than God's way. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die so that all those who would repent of their sins, that is, stop living your own way and go God's way. And believe in him, believe in Christ and his perfect sacrifice, will be saved. And the resurrection of Christ then points to a vindication proof that your sins are forgiven and that Jesus reigns victorious and will one day come and gather his church. Friends, it is easy to go the way of the crowd, the way of pa- the path of least resistance. We must resist such conveniences. We do not follow Jesus out of convenience, but out of conviction that his word is true and that it is trustworthy. So, brothers and sisters, do not be fooled by mockery, do not be frustrated by it, and do not be surprised. You will face many good arguments. Many will point out your weaknesses and your sin as a reason why they'll never believe in Jesus. Trust that God's Word is good and true. Trust the clear teachings of Christ Jesus our Lord and Savior. Perhaps you're here today. Perhaps you've gathered here today not really thinking much beyond the day. I know I often am tempted that way. Just thinking about today i've got some things to do this afternoon, maybe a baseball game to watch, um, some book to read, got things to do we We often don't think much beyond today be, be, beyond what's really right in front of us. Yes, we have cares and concerns, yes th- there are things that that maybe we want to bring down. We kind of tend to push those down and push them away. yes, there's bills to be paid, work to be done, but there is always. Tomorrow, There's always more time, isn't there? At least that's what we tell ourselves. There's always more time. Let me remind you of Peter's sort of hard-hitting and straightforward reminder that he has here. But by the same word, God's word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. See, we have no promise of tomorrow. We don't even have the promise that today is going to last its fullest. We only have the promise that this world will come to an end. That's the promise we have. That one, t- one day an accounting is coming. Johnny Cash captured it well in one of his songs. There's a man going around taking names, and he decides who to free and who to blame. Everybody won't be treated all the same. There will be a golden ladder reaching down when the man comes around. The hairs on your arm will stand up, and the terror of each sip and every step. Will you partake of that last offered cup, or disappear into the potter's ground when that man comes around. Let's pray. Eternal Father in heaven, it's for your glory that we have attended to your word today. It's for our own benefit that we hope to be reminded of these. To be reminded that one day you will return to judge the ungodly. And our prayers that we would not be found among them but that we would be numbered among the righteous. But it's only through faith in Christ, only through His atoning work, that we can be numbered among those righteous. Not by our own holiness or by our own righteousness. No, our trust is in the promise that all those who have repented of their sins and trust in Christ have been imputed the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That today, those that are in, by faith in Christ are righteous that we have passed from death unto life and we trust in the promise we wait expectantly for the new heavens and the new earth where all the righteous will dwell for all of eternity around our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ help us to trust these truths help us to fight against sin help us to dwell In your presence. It's for your glory and for our eternal good. In Christ Jesus name. Amen.